I think that a lot of times when we're when we're young, you know, we have these grand dreams and we're crazy and wild enough to believe that we can change the world and and mm-hmm. we can. But I think we often get discouraged because we don't always learn what the road to success really looks like and feels like. You know, I think a lot of times, you know, we're, we're naive when we're young, you know, and I'm not going to blame kids for not understanding this, you know, that's why I'm here to like, you know, give you the tea on like what is really like. Right. So, you know, you got to know that like that bump in the road that, that you're about to hit par for the course. Okay. Doesn't mean you're bad at this. Doesn't mean this is a bad idea. It just means you got to find a way over it and keep on going. Mm-hmm. Now, if, you, if you decide to stop, then then yeah, that's the end of your journey and it's all over. But that's a choice that you make. Welcome to Boss Locks, and you are now listening to the next episode from our pilot series with today's show featuring Patricia Kohar. And today's interview is an interesting one. I mean, they're all interesting if I do say so myself, but this one makes me think of the journey to entrepreneurship or you just... A journey towards growth of any nature. I mean, you see, it's a, it's an it's an interesting path to embark on. I mean, you have to first find something that you're interested in, figure out how to make it work for you, and believe that it will help you achieve your wildest dreams. I mean, when you say it like that, it sounds pretty simple, but in all reality, it could be pretty intimidating. You know, matter of fact, I'd argue that believing in yourself is the hardest part about following your dreams. I mean, not only do you have to have the confidence that you can do it, but you also have to be ready and stand up for what you believe in when people try to get you to give up or tell you that you aren't good enough to make your idea become a reality. I know it wasn't until this podcast was released that I truly started to believe in myself, and a lot of that confidence came from the lessons I've learned from my past guests, and that's why I find today's guest so interesting. You see, not only does Patricia help people embark on their entrepreneurial journey, but she caters her knowledge to lead kids and teens to start businesses of their own. And I just think it's so incredible and powerful in so many ways. And honestly, I I can't wait for you to learn more about Patricia's uh, journey and what she does. Um, for a living. So without any further ado, here is episode seven, Empathy and Leadership with Patricia Kohar. Thank you for listening. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Walter Gaynor II. I would like to welcome you to Boss Loss. This is a show where we are redefining professionalism by proving that natural hair and professionalism do coexist. Now, today I have the honor and privilege of speaking with Patricia Kohar. Patricia, how are you doing today? I'm great. How are you doing? Doing well. Doing well. It's been a day, but, you know, blessed. Very blessed. Um, So for anyone who is not familiar, Patricia is an educator who teaches and provides educational programs that support entrepreneurship amongst kids and um, young adults. Uh, Patricia is also a Harvard grad with an MBA from Columbia, worked at Def Jam, and really has done like so many things throughout her life and I really can't wait to hear about your journey and what you're doing now. Um, Looking forward to it. (laughs) (laughs) So before we dive into everything I always ask people um, 
you could name three things that most people don't really know about you. Okay. Uh, the first thing I would say is a lot of people know that I'm an entrepreneur and that I provide entrepreneurship education for kids and teens. Mm -hmm. What a lot of people don't realize is that I have another side hustle. I teach English as a foreign language and I work independently. So I don't work for one particularly particular company, but mm -hmm. uh, I have students all over the world that I talk to on a daily basis in Taiwan, you know, sometimes South America, Spain, a couple in China. And oh, um, wow. it's, yeah, it's really awesome. I just love being able to talk to people that are like yeah. halfway around the world and from a totally different culture, just mm -hmm. on a daily basis. I think it has such a, a profound impact on your perspective on the world and life. Yeah, for real though, you really see things from other people's perspectives from a whole different culture. Yeah, that's really cool. You know, when I was in college, I um I got I was really blessed to go to China for this um study abroad program, and it was interesting. There's a lot of people like from America and other countries who go over there to teach English, and you don't even need to know the other language. They just really want people who are native English speakers. Yeah, but you're absolutely. doing that on a whole new level. You're speaking to people in Taiwan, <laughs> Spain, all over the world. You know, a full round yes. view of the society and everything. That's really cool. Yeah, English English is really in demand, like in so many other countries. It's really mm -hmm. interesting how much people really kind of need it in order to, you know, progress in their professions and, you mm. know, things like that. So True. Do you speak any other languages? I do, actually. I speak Spanish, so that does help me okay. with my Spanish-speaking students. And the other language that I study is American Sign Language, actually. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah I know that's uh, really starting to pick back up ASL and um, a lot of school programs, too. Yeah, that's really cool. I love that. Oh, very cool. Okay, nice. All right, so we'll have to circle back around to that. So that's one. Uh, what's something else? I mean, that really, I mean, in a way kind of counts <laughs> for like three different things, but <laughs> if you have more you want to share, you know. <laughs> well, I did have two others in mind. Right. Uh, you already mentioned that I used to work at Def Jam, and mm -hmm. yes, it is as fun as ex and exciting as it sounds. People always ask me, is it really that fun? Yes, it mm -hmm. was really that fun. Um, you, you got to meet a lot of celebrities, go to, you know, album release parties and things like that. Mm -hmm. One thing that a lot of people don't realize about working at a place like that is you do get a lot of access to free things. And the thing that I really got obsessed with was getting free CDs at work. I worked for, oh. I worked for the head of a department and he literally would just let me order anything I wanted for free like I would take orders from my friends like what do you want this week and I would just order it and then give them that to my so friends cool. wow that's awesome <laughs> you were the plug you're like I got it yes you I got you wow that's really cool my stepdad worked at a um FYE which is this music and entertainment stores are usually in the mall and when I he worked it, there, yes. yeah, yeah, back mm -hmm. when, you know, CDs were definitely bigger. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, yeah, he would, like, sometimes he'd be able to get, like, the, the store demo CD, and he'd be able to take it home, and we'd be able to get yeah. free access, but that's, like, little, little game compared to what you had. That's really cool. <laughs> that's really cool. What was going on um, around the time you worked there? Around the time I worked there, it actually was really interesting, because it was after this whole, um, 
this whole movement of joint ventures came about, mm. like, you know, the Rockefeller and uh, Murder, Inc. and all of those things. Like, that was right after all those things got really popular and every, every artist who started to get big, you know, they didn't want to just bring new artists to their home label. They wanted their own label and they wanted a joint venture. Mm. So it was pretty cool to kind of watch those people grow their businesses within wow. this larger company. And the other thing that was really kind of interesting and trippy about that time was it was around the time when platforms like Napster were becoming really popular mm. and all these like, you know, big wig execs were freaking out about people stealing the music and how are we going to maintain a business and what is, this is going to ruin our business model. I mean, it was so interesting to be there at that time because people really didn't know what things were going to look like on the other side of all of that craziness. And, right. um, and now of course we see it as our, it's just our new normal that music is digital and you know, right. you can get it online and it's no big deal. But at that time it scared so many people. Wow. That is interesting. You really worked at a very like <laughs> iconic time in the culture from just like <laughs> the change of like how internet impacts everything. And also like you mentioned, did you meet Jay-Z? I, I wouldn't say I met him like we were buddy, buddy, but you know, I mean, he, his office he at one point was mm -hmm. right down the hall from me. So I worked in a legal department. And so of course we had, you know, to always talk to these joint ventures about the deals mm -hmm. and the new artists and things like that. So I was definitely down in the office and I would see him and things like that. I remember his, um, his assistant, I would always talk to her because we were the ones who kind of dealt with all the paperwork. Mm -hmm. And um, I actually remember one moment in particular where a coworker of mine who was at the desk right next to me, she was pregnant at the time. And I mean, like super pregnant. She was like, like eight months and three weeks pregnant. Oh, wow. And he just happened to come by and, you know, saw her and was just like, hey, and wishing her well. And I remember him like asking if he could touch her belly. And she was like, go <laughs> ahead. <laughs> it was like kind of like a cool, like sweet moment, you know, where right. just like two regular people just connect over something, right. you know, that everyone has in common. Just over regular life. Yeah. Oh, that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. That's that's a story that you'd probably have to sign an NDA about now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll, yeah, we'll just cancel this whole podcast. Right. You know, keep <laughs> wow. Okay, that's cool. Man, that's really cool. All right, so that was that number two. That was number two. That was. I didn't even get to the last wow. one. Should I keep should I keep going? I, I'm I'm really I'm really curious to see what like can be like the one you saved for last. <laughs> what is number right. three? I saved this for last because it's the most random. When I, I was a kid, from about late elementary school to early high school around mm -hmm. there, I was a competitive Scottish Highland dancer. A competitive Scottish Highland dancer. Yes, and you look confused, so Very. let me explain <laughs> a little bit more. <laughs> so, um... Scottish Highland dancing is, um, you know, it's like a folk style of dancing that, you know, obviously comes from Scottish culture. It's not, okay. um, it's not like the clogging or stepping type of dancing that a lot of people think of when they think of Irish or Scottish dancing, but it's something that you do in soft shoes, but you do, you know, you wear a traditional kilt and, you know, traditional Scottish garb. And yes, I was like pretty much the only black girl there at the time, <laughs> but it was like super fun. And I really loved it. And to this day, my mom has a whole 
trove of like medals and trophies that I won as a competitive oh, Scottish okay. dancer. I was good. You were good. <laughs> <laughs> I was good. Okay. So people knew you because you're the only black person and because you were really killing it. <laughs> exactly. Okay, that's cool. So did you like have to like travel to other Scottish Highland tournaments or um, yeah? Dancing? Yeah. Okay, yeah, cool. so the way we got into it was um, I had a Spanish teacher at the time who just happened to be Scottish, and she did that as a kid, and she introduced okay. us to it. And on the weekends, once we, you know, kind of really got into it, she would take, like, you know, four or five or six of us in this camper that she had, and we would, like, drive to Pennsylvania or to Connecticut or to, you know, to these different states that were maybe, like, four hours away because we lived in New York at the time. And yeah, mm -hmm. we would travel and go to all these competitions and it was just so much fun. Wow, that's really cool. That's a yeah. whole new experience too. So you're really exposed to like multiple different cultures growing up. Yeah, I think I have been. I, I think I'm lucky to have had that experience because I really do think it kind of gives you just kind of more perspective globally yeah. speaking, you know? And, and mm -hmm. our world is so interconnected now and is such a global world and a global economy that, you know, I think it actually is helpful and beneficial to have had that experience. Very true, very true. Yeah, I think, um, I know my grandmother always speaks about making sure you always have a circle with, um, like a really diverse circle because you grow up and learn more about just this one perspective that just comes from your direct environment and then you get to yeah. pull in others as well. Yeah, exactly. There's a, there's a name for that. I forget what it's called, but something related mm -hmm. to like echo. It's almost like being in an echo chamber because oh. it's like everyone around you has the same experience and the same opinions as you. And it's just, mm -hmm. you just keep hearing the same things over and over again, but it's not ideal. I agree. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Okay, cool. So you basically dropped some three very incredible, <laughs> unique things I never would have known. So thank you very much for sharing. <laughs> no problem. All right. Now, um, I know before you were speaking um, a little bit about your childhood before as well about um, your parents and can you talk about kind of what they did for a living when you were growing up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so my parents are originally from Jamaica and anybody who I think is, you know, relatively familiar with Jamaican culture knows that it's very much a hustle oriented culture and entrepreneurship is big in Jamaican mm -hmm. culture. So, you know, when they came here, you know, of course they, you know, had traditional jobs initially, but um, not, it didn't take them that long to decide that they were going to start a business. And the first business that they started was a school mm -hmm. and they started that, um, I would say it was about 30 years ago that they started nice. that. And um, for my entire childhood from 10 all the way till just a few years ago, that was like their main hustle was this school out on Long Island. Um, but then my mom, who's an accountant, she also, she's a CPA. So she has an accounting firm and she always had her office at home and, you know, down in the basement, she was always, you know, super busy at tax time. And so, you know, mm -hmm. even when we were away from the school at home, it was still mom's business was right there. Right. So I feel like entrepreneurship has just mm -hmm. been coming at me from every angle from, from a very young age is really interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. You really grow up. It's almost like entrepreneurship just becomes a normal thing for you. Yeah, absolutely. It's not something that I viewed as, you know, kind of weird or like an oddball thing to do because it's like it's what both my parents did. 
Right. For, <laughs> for a long time, 30 years. For that's yes. like, I want to like shout out to them. That's, um, <laughs> that is impressive uh, doing anything for 30 years, but especially running a school. Um, yeah. Do you know what age, um, like what ages did they kind of cater to? Yeah, yeah. I absolutely know because uh, it was definitely guess, my first yeah. job, right? I was there <laughs> right, all yeah. the time. <laughs> so um, initially when they started, it was about two and a half years old to, I think it, when they first started, they went to about first grade. But over time, they extended it to all the way to fifth grade. So it went from like nursery to fifth grade by the time they were done growing that uh, that range of it. And yeah, it was interesting to watch them just keep building and building. Like you said, for 30 years, that takes mm -hmm. serious perseverance. I mean, that's a lesson that a lot of people could use. <laughs> yeah, very much so. That's, and I know like growing up with that, that's definitely like amazing, but also has challenges. I know uh, my mom had a school when I was growing up, uh, Montessori school. I think um, she had it for about 15 years and I definitely attended that, but was also there after school's closed, watching her continue to do all the background work to make sure the school keeps running and everything. That's a right, exactly. definitely not an easy field. All right, Agreed. Cool. Got you. So by the time you're growing up, teaching was just, that was almost like destined for you to <laughs> do. It's like the family business being an entrepreneur and a teacher. That's <laughs> Yeah, it really was. And it's funny, like, I think as much as they were such an integral part of my upbringing, as mm -hmm. I, you know, first kind of, you know, got into adulthood and was finding my footing, I, I really fought both of those things for whatever reason. I don't know. I think, you know, sometimes the norms that you pick up, you know, when you're mm -hmm. in college and from your social circle and when you start to realize, oh, not everyone's parents are entrepreneurs, really, you know, things right. like that. So, um, yeah, I really definitely kind of fought it at first, but you know, at this point in my life, I, I have come to terms with it. It is my, it's my calling. It's my mission. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to fight it anymore because it's not worth <laughs> it. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> cool. So um, actually speaking of college, um, mm -hmm. going to Harvard, that's a very big thing. So once, congratulations for one getting accepted, making it through Thank and you. graduating. Um, yeah, it's pretty awesome. And also going off to graduate school as well. Impressive. Um, I wonder, I'm curious, like, what your experience was at going to Harvard at that time. I know um, last week I spoke with Christina Joy, and she graduated from Howard. Um, and it was interesting hearing her experience at HBCU. So I'm wondering, in your experience, like, what was it like going to Harvard? Um, you know, there were definitely a lot of interesting aspects about going to Harvard. I think the one thing that I usually mention first is that it wasn't as I would say intellectually fulfilling as I mm. expected a place like Harvard to be that was actually kind of disappointing for me mm -hmm. um you know I was always the kind of person who I love learning and I love teaching, which is why I am where I am today. Right. And the one thing that I really started to realize after I had been at Harvard for a little while is that a lot of the people there are, are not really driven by that, you know, that burning desire to learn and to understand things. The thing that I noticed quickly is that like cheating was kind of normal. 
Mm. And like, you know, things like that, that I like, I just couldn't imagine doing myself and I would never go that route. Even if it meant I had to take an F, I would take the F. But Mm -hmm. a lot of people I think were, for whatever reason, their goal was to get the grade or, you know, to, to just to pass the course, regardless of whether they actually learned the stuff that that was actually presented. It was just about the ends. They weren't really concerned with the means very much. And so I always found that, yeah, I always found that a little bit disappointing. At the same time, I have to say the, the social circle that I was able to develop at Harvard was really awesome. I have friends to this day that I talked to from from that time in my life. And, you know, of course now being in quarantine, you know, I'm, I'm reaching out to the ones that I haven't talked to in a little while, like, hey, yes. how are you doing? It's been a while, how's quarantine going? And <laughs> like, right. it's like, you know, we talk and it's like, you know, it's like we saw each other yesterday. We just kind of pick up from wherever we left off. And, and that I absolutely loved about my experience at Harvard. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Do you think, um... I know like the past couple of years, there was a lot of scandals just around Ivy League schools and parents really, you know, mm. doing whatever they could to get their kids in. It's yeah. understandable to a degree, but at the same time, bribery is kind of um, off. Um, would you say like most of the students that you encountered who weren't really there to learn, do you think they, um, I guess maybe cared they were even at Harvard in particular or was just going to Harvard for the social status? You know, I... I do think they cared, most of them. Mm-hmm. There might have been a few who maybe didn't really understand the, the value and, the, and the, the privilege that they had because, you know, there are some people who maybe for generations their family went there and, and maybe mm-hmm. it, the, that, you know, that understanding kind of gets watered down. But for most people, I think they do understand that that is an amazing place to end up. I think that... For a lot of the people that maybe got into some of the things that I was mentioning earlier, they're probably just habits that they picked up from earlier in their lives. I mean, a lot of these kids came from really prestigious high schools that were super demanding. And sometimes just to survive in those environments, you start to pick up those habits about, let me just get the grade that I need so Mm -hmm. that I can get to the next phase. But then you still have that habit of just focusing on the result and not the process. And, you know, in the long term, I don't, I don't really think that serves us. So. True. True. You do bring up a good point. I think sometimes uh, we kind of forget that school is very demanding. I know um, I played sports in college and just Mm -hmm. having to keep up with the um, intensity of playing a college level sport and also keeping up with your school at the same time is right like two it's like having two different jobs really so um if we can't understand that predicament people could be in yeah it's tough what sport did you play soccer ah yeah okay yeah i played that um started in like second grade and kind of went all the way through um it was really cool because um we play soccer you meet people from literally all over the world so yes kind of like you mentioned before you know i have friends mm-hmm. like uh, i have a friend out in um, australia who's kind of leading the soccer program and just checking in with him to see like what's going on right now from mm-hmm. his perspective and it's all over the world so it was pretty cool yeah nice cool so um Going to Harvard and graduating, you had mentioned before that it actually was kind of a struggle. Um, 
afterwards. Um, I think usually like we all think like, oh, graduating from Harvard, you have like a million people calling you. You don't have to <laughs> right. do any. You don't ever apply. You're just like, oh, another missed call from Jeff Bezos or something. <laughs> right from the Fortune yeah. 500, right? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah. And um, did you actually did you start your lock journey while you're in college? No, I didn't. Um, my natural hair journey started in college. Okay. I actually didn't end up taking the leap into locks until shortly after grad school. So probably, mm. I'd say maybe five to seven years after I was done with college. Gotcha. So what was this, like, um, well, I guess what led you to even just start with natural hair in general? What was that transition like for you? Well, around that time so this was like um mid to late 90s mm -hmm. and that was kind of around the time where uh braids extensions started to become really popular right. and you know it was around the time of like poetic justice and you know oh, she had gotcha. those yeah. braids going on so you know it, it was really starting to catch on and the other thing is you know just being in college and like you said sometimes being really busy overwhelmed and you know trying to get everything done um, yeah. you know, the, the maintenance of braids is like super appealing because it's very low maintenance on a day-to-day -day basis. So I started getting braids kind of around sophomore, junior year, just to simplify my life and, you know, for the aesthetic. And then probably about six months down the line or something, um, you know, I, I had a perm when I started getting the braids and then I had a really bad, and I mean, horrendous experience Ooh. was so bad and I was like I am never ever perming my hair again and that was it I washed my hands of all the lie no like whatever uh -huh. chemical relaxers and I was like never again and oh, wow. I just <laughs> yeah oh <laughs> See, that's so really was, trauma with your transition yes it was a trauma related transition absolutely oh, wow. <laughs> So, um, you know, so I kept the braids for a while longer just so that I could start to grow out a little more natural hair. And I was like, I'm, I'm going to do the big chop as soon as I, mm -hmm. um, I feel like I have, you know, enough that I can do it and not be like totally skin bald on my head. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that's how I ended up going natural. It was just a really bad experience. Oh, man. Okay, so how was it when you started when you went through that transition? You started growing the natural hair. You were still in college. Like, what was the, um, I guess, what was like the feedback and the energy around it? Well, actually, the great thing is that the other thing that I would say probably has a little bit to do with the timing, like mid to late '90s, but also just people being in college and kind of you know experimenting and you know mm -hmm. finding you know who they want to be a, as a person. A lot of women were experimenting with natural hair at the time. I see. So, you know, anytime, you know, somebody else was like thinking about it, talking about it, you know, we have our little powwows in the lunchroom or whatever. And like, mm -hmm. there was a lot of support and encouragement. Like, yeah, girl, try it. You'll look great. You know, we can figure out whatever style will look okay. good on you because that's all you really got to do. You have to get used to a new you and you got to mm -hmm. find what works for you. So I, I thought it was a great time and a place to, to really do that. And, and I ended up loving it. You know, I started out with my teeny weeny afro and, mm -hmm. you know, I was all about, I like to change things up. And with a teeny weeny afro, there's not a lot you can change up style wise, mm -hmm. but you can change the color. You can right. change the color. Right. And that's what I did on a regular basis for most nice. of college. Oh, and um, yeah, it was a lot of fun. 
All right, cool. And you, did you have the Afro when you graduated and were starting to like apply for jobs? I did, yeah. So I had the Afro and trying to think I actually it was it was still a teeny weeny afro when I when Mm -hmm. I graduated and the first job that I had afterwards was at a law firm and a a pretty you know like I guess you could say conservative one Mm -hmm. um Paul Weiss I don't know if you know people in New York may have heard of it but you know it's like a big corporate law firm and and yes my hair was you know colored (laughs) but but you know they were cool with it it was not a big deal um so I didn't really find it to be a hindrance for my path at the time. I do think that some other women kind of felt nervous about interviewing because they were maybe um, kind of going for the more um, business consulting route or investment mm. banking route. And, you know, that can be super conservative. So, and then particularly the types of companies that they're striving for, you know, they want to work for the biggest and the best and work with the brightest, you know, I mean, there's nothing wrong with aiming for that, but sometimes their fears about how the people that made decisions there might view them because of their natural hair um, was a big concern, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and for some, for some women, unfortunately, I feel like they were forced to make decisions that they probably didn't really want to, and they probably wouldn't have if they felt a little bit freer to just be themselves in those environments. Mm-hmm. But, you know, such is life. Right. That's interesting, though. So in your field, I guess, what was what was that first job? So I first worked as a corporate paralegal at corporate Paul paralegal. Weiss. Yeah. Okay. Was that a type of role where you're more behind the scenes than someone who's like, I guess, a consultant going after like the Time Warners? Yeah, exactly. I was not, um, it's not really a client facing role. Um, It was something where um, it's more of like support to the corporate lawyers, right? Like I wasn't a Mm -hmm. lawyer, I was fresh out of college. So, you know, I didn't have any legal advice to give anyone. Um, But, you know, we were there to kind of support whatever they were working on. Like I remember one really big project I worked on was when, um, what was that team? Some football team was being sold. Um, oh, wow. The, was it the Redskins? Maybe? Is that a football team? I don't even that know. Is, that is. It is. In okay. It might, <laughs> it might have been that one. <laughs> but, um, you know, I remember when all these other lawyers from um, potential buyers for the team came in and, you know, I was there, you know, because I helped to do all the due diligence because that was really kind of what we really did to support the lawyers. So, you know, it wasn't like they were trying to hide us from the clients, but we weren't Mm -hmm. really the spokespeople for the company. Gotcha. Gotcha. So I guess oftentimes the fear comes in those um, employment decisions when you're in a client facing role and they're afraid of like the perception of someone with natural hair. Right. The perception mm-hmm. of someone with natural hair or locks actually mm-hmm. representing them as a company or a brand, you know. Gotcha. Okay. That's an interesting perspective. Cause, um, this um, podcast and really all started from my journey when I was getting ready to graduate and I was kind of nervous about entering the field with locks. Right. Um, and I knew it was possible, but I was always curious about how exactly people are navigating the corporate um, landscape. And of course things have, changed a bit now but not really that much i mean obviously if we have to try to push laws into place to protect people then obviously there's still an issue yeah Um, it's really shocking to me that you know i mean i'm talking about 
20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I really would have hoped that things could have changed a little bit more than they have. But right. I mean, we're still fighting to, you know, get things like the Crown Act passed because yeah. there's still a lot of discrimination against, you know, certain types of hairstyles and, you know, things mm-hmm. like that. You know, it's unfortunate. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And I think that's why um, just hearing like your story is kind of so important because you're someone who has been not only like working in schools, but also um, just in high level places with Lux. And regardless if you know it or not, just like your work ethic really shows and paints a subconscious picture that, oh, Lux are not actually that unprofessional. And yeah, um, yeah. and that actually leads me to um, a question, um, kind of in your words, how would you describe professionalism? Or like, what does that mean to you? Um, so there are, I think there are definitely some different components to that, but I think mm-hmm. one thing that I think is really crucial is just your sense of um, relationship management mm-hmm. and like emotional intelligence, or you know, I think some people call it EQ or you know something like that. But I just think that it's really important as a professional and to present yourself as a professional that you're able to see things from other people's perspectives even if you don't agree even if you think they're dead wrong I think it's still really important to be able to put yourself in other people's shoes to empathize with them and and understand what their needs are and to also have the I guess like the more the mental fortitude to be able to take in new information and reevaluate your own beliefs and your own thoughts on a regular basis because I think a lot of people think of mental fortitude as always standing your ground and always trying to convince other people that you're the one that's right. But I actually think it's the total opposite. I think people right. that are that are really smart enough to to rethink things that were core beliefs to them, but now with some new information or experiences that they've been presented with they can say, oh, you know what? I could have been wrong about that. And I, and I accept that. You know, mm. I think that really takes a higher level of, you know, intelligence and professionalism and, and strength to be able to do that. Um, I think one thing I thought about when I was thinking about this question is that I think in our culture, particularly American culture, we learn pretty, pretty well how to, how to run our mouths and, and say what we feel and what yeah. we believe is right. But we don't always learn as well how to shut up and listen to other people, how to mm-hmm. accept that we are not always right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> right. <laughs> like, and I think those things are, are really important to be introspective and to always be rethinking because you could always be wrong. Like that is always a distinct possibility. And if that's you very true. That, you, you know, that's, I really think a lot of times that's what separates average from superior, whether it's a professional, whether it's a leader, whether it's an employee, a manager, like, I think that is such an important part of it. That's really powerful. That's, and I agree with you 100%. I know um, it's really like oftentimes like 
it's a 50 50% chance that you are right. Like you really could right. be right with everything you have, all the knowledge you have, but there could be a whole other piece of it that really just shuts down your kind of main fact for saying <laughs> that you were right. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. And just maybe could be based on the types of experiences that you've had, you know, you've had all these experiences, but wait, there's those experience over, experiences over there that you're just now realizing exist and and now you have to kind of just rethink you know your whole perspective because being able to take in that new information and synthesize and you know build a new picture of what's real or what's true is i think important just to be able to grow as a gotcha. person okay let me ask you because i guess um really to be truly effective you'd have to have a balance of being able to sit back and know that you may be wrong or let someone else speak and also that other side or it is like, no, definitely fight for you know, what you believe in. So mm-hmm. um, what would you say is like, how do you learn to find that balance? Or how do you know when to, is your time to speak up and stand up for your idea? So that's a good question. I would say that there's, I don't think there's anything wrong with speaking up about your opinions or your stance on something. Um, I think that my preference is always to ask questions before Mm. I get to that point because I mean I always feel like I learn so much more by asking questions I learn so much more by taking in information than by putting out information so you know when there are times when you have to express yourself and there may be some core beliefs that you firmly believe and you're not going to change your mind on and those are choices that you have to make but I just think that if you're smart about always reevaluating, then you can start to make those decisions more easily. If you reevaluate and you say to yourself, no, even with this new information, I'm still sticking with this, mm-hmm. then that's fine. And stick with it and say that. That's okay. But I think the part that a lot of people sometimes let, let skate is that reevaluation. They just keep on going because we're creatures of habit, right? You know, like that's Mm. what people do. They like habit. They like change. They like staying on the same course because it's comfortable. But you have to make yourself uncomfortable. You have to. Oh, I like that. You have to make yourself uncomfortable. Mm. That's really cool. Okay, cool. So have you, um, I guess, kind of stick in that topic of when it's time to speak up or sit back. Um, Have you had any issues throughout your journey with any like hair discrimination or like race-based discrimination in the workplace? Hmm. That's an interesting question. Let me think for a minute. I have to say, I don't think I've really experienced hair discrimination in the workplace, but I think a lot of that has to do with the profession for you know for example like you know the the people that i talked about who after college they wanted to work for a fortune 500 company or an investment bank or something like that that was never my that was never my path i never had any desire to work in a space that um i'll use conservative for lack of a better term i'll ne- i never had any desire to work in a space that was that conservative and it's not because i was afraid of discrimination it just wasn't for me i just knew that that wasn't a place that i wanted to to be i wanted to work someplace that was a little bit different you know mm. i've always kind of 
I've always kind of been like, um, I've always kind of followed like, you know, the path, what do you call it? The path less traveled or, or whatever. Oh, like that's really? always, that's always kind of been my MO in life. I never picked the traditional path. It's just not my style. And mm-hmm. so I think the places that I end up are often places that are a little more open and a little more free. And so I haven't had, um, I haven't had any experiences like that in particular that I can think of. Mm-hmm. Um, now I've I've had experiences outside the workplace, of course. Because <laughs> <laughs> right. you know you story. can't control yeah, you can't control your environment everywhere you mm-hmm. go. So, you know, sometimes <clears throat> there's that. Oh, that's cool, cool. That actually reminds me of um I mean last year I was speaking with uh Dr. Abbasi Bomani, who was kind of sharing that really if you're in an environment where people do have an issue with your hair or the way you present yourself that might not be an environment that's best for you anyways. Yeah, exactly. That was pretty cool. And also, I guess it also speaks to your entrepreneurship mindset as well and (laughs) um, helping kids get into entrepreneurship. So um, to, I guess in your words, what exactly do you do? So I am an education enrichment specialist, and my focus is providing entrepreneurship education for kids and teens. So I provide Mm -hmm. online and in-person solutions to families, schools, youth organizations who want to support youth entrepreneurship. Very cool. So do you kind of work with just one school, or is it anyone and everyone who's like, oh, I want to sign up for this. <laughs> like, who exists yeah. do you usually work with? I mean, oh, any, anyone and everyone. I mean, right now, I'm doing a lot of work with families because, I mean, you know, all the schools are closed at the moment. <laughs> at least all the schools <laughs> right. around me. Um, but one thing that I'm starting to do is to reach out to the schools who are, you know, they're just starting to figure out this distance learning thing. I think a lot of schools are starting to realize that this is going to last a little bit longer than they were mm-hmm. initially hoping. So um, I am starting to talk to schools about how I might be able to help in terms of, you know, supporting some project-based learning initiatives that they're starting to bring into education because, you know, with this type of setup that they have now, it is actually kind of a a nice approach to take project-based learning. So like there's a school Mm. in New York that I initially had um, an in-person workshop planned for, and that's not going to happen at the moment, but, you know, they are starting to talk about what they are going to do between now and June. And she's, she sent me a message. She's like, I didn't forget about you. I think we can still do something <laughs> online, but we got to figure nice. it out. So let's talk. So, you know, we're, we're going to talk about that tomorrow. But um, working with the kids is, is just really easy because, you know, as long as they have an internet connection at home, you know, their parents can, you know, sign them up for a meeting and I can mentor them and, and coach them through this par- process just one-on-one. That's really cool. And very important as well. I'm glad that the school is still excited and interested about making that happen yeah you know, me um, too. <laughs> yeah and it's there's so many opportunities out there like um we um uh, kind of posted there's this guy named moxie who bought an atm for his kids and got them into just owning an um, atm business and they yes. have a couple of different locations down in florida and i just think like stories like that is just so important because it shows like one there are so many ways to kind of start off your entrepreneurship journey and it could be something you don't necessarily have to invent the next like Facebook. You could own an right. ATM or something mm-hmm. like that. 
Um, yeah, what are, exactly. Yeah. What are some of the lessons that you're teaching the kids in your program? Well, because I do a lot of one-on-one, um, what I do is, is very customized. So, you know, mm. it really depends on the kid that's sitting in front of me and, you know, whatever, mm. you know, situation they're tackling at the moment. But there are kind of some um, underlying principles that I'm always referring to and, and bringing up when I work with kids. Um, because I just think they're really important, not only for entrepreneurship, but they're just like really important life skills. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of them is problem seeking and solving. And, uh, you know, gotcha. as an entrepreneur, like that's your job, find a problem, right. create a good solution, you know, figure out how to make it that a value proposition and then go find the people, you know, who have this problem. And, you know, that's how you can, you know, create value to, for, for a community. Um, you know, particularly I like, um, seeking slash solving because I think, uh, sometimes we get, um, we get really good at problem like seeking, but, but not solving. We're like, Hey, there's mm. a problem here. Is, is somebody going to solve this? Like, no, you solve it. You found it. Like, I can't <laughs> solve it. <laughs> right. So, um, you know, I really love to always talk about that. And um, empathy, I already talked about. I just think that's really important to just to, to really build good, strong, genuine relationships with people. You can't do that without empathy. And, um, you know, I think it's so applicable also when I talk to kids about marketing and, mm. you know, putting themselves in their customers' shoes and what is your customer really concerned about? What are they struggling with? Or, you know, when you're trying to make a sale, what is that person on the other side of the table? What is it that they really need? Who are they looking for this for? How do you make sure you can, you match them with the right product, the perfect product for them? You know, like that's how you kind of get those, those things to fall into place is you've really got to be able to see things from the other person's perspective so that you can say, Hey, I know your problem. I understand where you're coming from this is the solution for you. And let me explain to you why. When you can speak mm-hmm. their language, that helps you make that connection with your customer or potential customers. Um, another one is just money management. And, you know, I think that one kind of speaks for itself. You know, you can make all the money in the world if you don't know how to manage it and hold on to it, you're going to be broke tomorrow. So <laughs> you got to learn True. that skill. And um, the last thing I talk about a lot is the success mindset. And I think that a lot of times when we're, when we're young, you know, we have these grand dreams and we're crazy and wild enough to believe that we can change the world and, and mm-hmm. we can, but I think we often get discouraged because we don't always learn what the road to success really looks like and feels like. You know, I think a lot of times, you know, we're naive when we're young, you know, and I'm not going to blame kids for not understanding this. You know, that's why I'm here to like, you know, give you the tea on like what is really like. So, you know, you got to know that like that bump in the road that that you're about to hit par for the course. Okay, doesn't mean you're bad at this. Doesn't mean this is a bad idea. It just means you got to find a way over it and keep on going. Now, if, you, if you decide to stop, then, then yeah, that's the end of your journey and it's all over, but that's a choice that you make, you know, things like that, like how to help them navigate to success and not let those little pitfalls derail them or discourage them because dude, that is life, you know, and that is entrepreneurship. 
<laughs> yes, it is. I already see the excitement in your eyes just as you're talking about this. Already know. Like, I can only imagine what the. Ex I, I might like hop in on one of your sessions one day. <laughs> just, <laughs> that's really cool. It really inspired me. And uh, how, how old are the kids that um, are usually in your program? So I work with kids, anyone 18 or younger. I have had uh, families with a kid as young as six or seven. Oh, wow. and, and they're like, I'm all about this lip gloss that I learned how to make. Help me sell it, you know? <laughs> or like, I, a grandma taught me how to make these bomb brownies. I can make money off this, but I need a little help, you know? Right. So I do not set a minimum age right? Wow. The only thing that I need families to understand is that if, if you have a young entrepreneur that really is on the young side, they're going to need support, right? They're going to mm -hmm. need help from the family. They obviously can't drive themselves to make deliveries or to put things in the mail. You know, they're going to need help managing some of these things. But if the family is on board with really supporting this and giving them as much help as they need until they develop the skills to, to kind of do more on their own, I'll support the whole team, whoever that is. Wow, that's really cool. So as long as they can speak and understand, exactly. they, they could probably join. That's really cool. <laughs> Five or six. You know, actually, my sibling who is born an entrepreneur, like my mom had the school for a long time. My grandmother had a fashion company in New York way back in the day. And my sibling has had the entrepreneurial spirit. Like these, the sew pillows and sell them no. when they were six years old. And then they actually mm. had a... Um, they got a retail license and started selling candy in our neighborhood during wow, the summers nice. and like made a profit. <laughs> so yeah, I, I really think like there are so many ways to get it. You, it doesn't matter how old you are. And it's really yeah, cool. You really absolutely. have that wide range from like, it could be five, it could be 18. Exactly. Exactly. Really cool. I just think it's really important for, um, for a lot of kids, you know, they don't even really kind of see much of this until they get to college or, you know, later. And I just think that they need it at, at so much of a younger age, because I think the, the kind of mindset that, that it takes to really do something like this, it's actually, I think, more optimal at a younger age, unless you've mm -hmm. really kind of had some training or experience in, in, you know, how to approach it. Because, you can't tell an eight-year-old that they're not, you know, that they're not going to sell those brownies. You, you can't tell them that they're not going to do it. You know, they're crazy enough to believe that, yes, I'm going to do it. I'm going right. to make a million dollars doing it. Yeah. yeah. So, but they just need a little bit of help to, you know, get all those pieces in place that they need to really have a successful and profitable business. Wow. And that is cool, cool with like the different things you're teaching them to solve problem, problems, enter situations with empathy, money like managing their money um that success mindset those are like core values that once they master that they could really go into any business and kind of help yes. it grow yeah i know exactly. um i listen to gary v a lot and he really kind of breaks down like that success mindset part like how long it really takes like and she yep. said i believe like it took ellen like 10 years from when they like started in the business till now 10 years to really become ellen mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's, Alice, you had already that other talent as well. So just in general, like there's no overnight success, really. It's usually the grind, the hustle, times exactly. like now when we're all kind of sitting indoors, really mm -hmm. putting that to work. 
Right. A hundred percent. Like it drives me crazy when, you know, people use that phrase overnight success because mm-hmm. man, that is such a unicorn situation. Really mm. all the, all the people that you think were overnight successes, they were grinding for five years, 10 years, and you just never heard of them, you know, but that they were putting in the work and that's why all of a sudden you discovered them. You're like, Oh, overnight, they're famous. No, <laughs> right. no, you just didn't know who <laughs> they happen. were when they were grinding. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably, <laughs> yeah. I'm sure most people were like, Oh yeah, I did this in no time. They're, they're lying. Yeah, anybody who's trying to sell you that, probably not really true. (laughs) Right, man. Okay, so what are, so during this time, actually, right now, where a lot of people are really sitting at home, and um, as for some people, like, they don't necessarily have the choice, actually, do have to still go out and work, but Mm -hmm. for those kind of families you're speaking to that kind of have time, or they're trying to figure out something to do with their kids, what are some things you're recommending to them? Um, to one, stay engaged with their kids, but also seek out opportunities for entrepreneurship? Yeah, so now is is a really interesting time because I definitely come across a lot of kids who, if they started businesses already, and believe it or not, that a lot of the kids that I come across, they've already started something, which I think is really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but a lot of them are, um, have done a lot in terms of like the pop-up markets and, you know, live events and things like that. So the Mm -hmm. fact that that is like completely gone and is not a revenue stream for them, a lot of them, I'm now talking to them one about just other ways to build up their business. Like, Mm -hmm. can you, are there some social media marketing skills that you need to be learning? Do you need to be building a website? Because right now all you have is social media and that's never a good way to build a long-term business. Like you need your own online property if you're really going to build a business. Um, You know, things like, you know, doing promotion and marketing for your business from your house, like podcast interviews and, you know, things like that. I actually know several podcasts that are specifically dedicated to youth entrepreneurship and they want to interview kid entrepreneurs, but Mm -hmm. a lot of kids don't know to pursue those opportunities to talk about their business and their brand and their message. So, you know, really talking to them about how they can use this time to increase their brand awareness, how to improve their online presence. And then also for the ones who can sell online, because some things can be sold online, um, talking to them about how to actually make that online sales process. Because if they're kind of used to the in-person sales and the pop-up markets, that's a new thing for, for a lot of them. And sometimes their families need help supporting that because they don't really have experience in that either. Wow. Okay. So right. I want to take a quick break just so you could tell everyone where they could mm-hmm. find out more about your program. Cause this is a, a must. I know just people like in my age group and older who probably <laughs> need your advice as well, <laughs> but anyone with kids right now, like where can they go to find out more um, about your program? Sure. I have a website and the website is teach entrepreneurship for kids.com on the website. The, the resource you should definitely look for is my free playbook for kids in business. 
it's got some really helpful tips for parents or families who are supporting these kids. And it's also got some really helpful tips for kids and also, also some stories about my entrepreneurial adventures as a kid and as an adult and things that mm -hmm. I learned. So um, I think that's a really helpful resource. I also offer two free coaching calls to anybody who wants to talk about potential business ideas or uh, improving the business that the business that they've already started. So all of those things are available on the website. I am on social media. Instagram is definitely the hotspot. Um, my Instagram handle is hands on entrepreneurship for kids. And it is the number four in that one, only because I literally ran out of characters. I couldn't spell <laughs> F-O-R. <laughs> so, you know, I just went for the number. Um, right. And then uh, I'm also on Facebook, too, Hands-On Entrepreneurship for Kids, if that's your preferred platform. Gotcha. So if you have an internet connection, there's no excuse. You get, like, two <laughs> <Yeah>. free hours, <laughs> got a free, like, uh, PDF. Wow. Yes. What, was, uh, what was one of the um, entrepreneurial pursuits you had as a kid? Well, the one I like to talk about the most is uh, one that I got into when I was in middle school with a good friend of mine named Izzy, and we, we still chat on Facebook to this day, even though she doesn't live in my area anymore, but when she comes to town, we still see each other. And we were hanging out one day. We couldn't go out for recess because it was like raining or something like that. And um, we saw some of the boys because, you know, it was back when, you know, the boys have sat at the boys' table and the girls sat at the girls' table. And the boys <laughs> so were, um, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> so, um, so the boys were playing football with this paper football mm -hmm. and it came flying our way and Izzy grabbed it. And, you know, she was kind of looking at it because it was kind of interested and interesting how it was folded, kind of like origami style, but it's just mm. a triangle. And she took it, stuck it on her finger, and she was like, oh, look, it's a hat for my finger. It's a finger hat. And so we, we thought that was hilarious. The boys didn't think it was funny at all. They just wanted to play football. Like, but go to my football. <laughs> right, exactly. She's like, you're, like, you're ruining our game. Come on. Right. So, um, but Izzy was like, no, they're finger hats. Isn't that cool? And I was like, yeah, I actually kind of like that. So we, we harassed this, this kid, Jason, to teach us how to make these footballs, which we turned into finger hats. And we started, like, decorating them. Oh, and cool. um so you know we would like decorate them we were wearing them in class and you know probably getting in a little bit of trouble but you know don't tell anybody and um yeah, you know keeping this podcast hidden yeah. no one's <laughs> keep it on the low but um you know like some of our friends were like oh can you make one but put cats on it or hmm. can you make one but put these flowers on it and i was like girl izzy we can sell these. <laughs> so we had a finger hat business for a very short stint, but it was still fun. It was short because we got busted by, mm. <laughs> by the administration. <laughs> we were told that we could not take money from our classmates. And man, it really burned me up. Wow. I was like, we are creating value, man. Do right. you understand what's going on here? But they were right. not having it. They shut us down. Wow. And so that was like just one of these moments that I always remember from my childhood about wanting to be an entrepreneur and hitting an obstacle. And I let it be the end of the road for me. Mm. I didn't, I didn't fight. I didn't fight it because I, you know, I was always the kind of student, like, you know, I was the good girl, 
you know, I always did my homework, never got in trouble. And being just being called to the principal's office, I was like, oh, shoot, must what's terrifying. going on? Like, I was scared. And yeah. they told us to stop. And I was like, okay, I guess that's it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but in hindsight, I wish I had just known a little bit more about the success mindset. I would found a way around it or over it or through it or something. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, that had to happen for you to get to where you are today, teaching other kids how to push through it. Keep exactly. that creativity flowing. <laughs> Very cool. So I want to take a quick moment just to say thank you to everyone who's joined me on this journey. Uh, from the support on social media, the private messages I get in my inbox, and also the orders coming in from the Boss Lock shop, I just want to say I truly, truly appreciate all of this support. Um, also, Another quick shout out is to ODE Omar, who actually created this song that's playing right now. Um, He's someone I went to school with um, back in the day, Bluefield College. And, um, you know, it's always great when you can support and collaborate with people that you kind of came up with. And um, also want to let you all know that I'm working on something new. I mean, I'm always working on something to help grow the podcast and elevate black voices but i'm working on something that i hope will um expand this podcast and help it grow into new realms and new dimensions um it's something that i hope will i'll be able to announce by the end of july but um if you would like a sneak peek um for everyone that's signed up for my mailing list you know it should come to your inbox in a week or two and it's not too late you know if you haven't signed up all you do is go to our website which is www.bosslocks.org and there's a form you just have to scroll like for one second you'll see it to sign up and it's completely free Uh, once again that's www.bosslocks.org which is b-o-s-s-l-o-c-k-s.org you can sign up today and also you should just check out the website because, you know, I put in, <laughs> I put in some time into it. And it's not like the most glamorous thing you'll ever see, but I'm proud of it. And um, I'd love for y'all to check it out. So um, anyways, I'm going to let you get back to hearing more about Patricia and her journey. And um, thank you. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Nice. So now I want to kind of get into your lock journey in particular. So, um, to kind of start off, what message would you give to others about natural hair? Embrace it. Embrace it? Embrace it, man. Yeah, there's nothing to fear. I think that, you know, kind of like we talked about earlier, I think, you know, some people have this notion that it's not for me. It won't look good on me. There's no way that the hair that you were born with doesn't look good on you. I just, Mm -hmm. I've never met that person. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, do you you have to maybe do a little research, do a little work, do a little experimenting? Yeah, sure. I mean, I was all about those natural hair magazines when I first went natural. And then, you know, also when I was looking at locks and after I got them, because you got to find what works for you. But don't, don't be afraid that you're, you're going to look crazy or that it's not for you. There is, there is some style, some way to rock your natural hair. Just embrace it. Go for it. Mm-hmm. Nice. And um, how long have you had locks? It's been about 15 years. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Nice. It's been that long. Do you keep going all the way through it? Do you take little breaks? Like try out different hairstyles? 
Um, I've, I've had these locks all the way through. I have trimmed them from time mm -hmm. to time, but I've never like gotten rid of them and started again. I know people who have done that. Like I have a cousin who he does that like, I don't know, every so often, but, um, but I've just kept it going 15 nice. years straight. Nice. And, um, I know before you had like a mini fro and you would like dye it sometimes, but, uh, did you, uh, try any other types of hairstyles before you went into locks? Yeah, I did. So in between locks and the teeny weeny afro, I um I had I had a larger, more voluminous afro. Oh, I was yeah. very I was very proud of it. Yes, nice. <laughs> and um and I still played around with the color, but you know when it had a little more length, I started to discover other styles like you know twist outs and braid outs and things like that. Um, so, you know, kind of like getting the little wavy look and, you know, all those different things. I really had a lot of fun with it. You know, like I said, you know, I had that magazine by my side and I was always trying something new. Mm -hmm. And, um, I think the only reason why I didn't, I didn't keep that in the long term is because the, the length for me, it was a lot of maintenance. I'm, I'm a super low maintenance kind of girl. And that was just more than I was willing to dedicate to my hair. <laughs> <laughs> so, I understand yeah. that. Yeah. I know. Um, I remember one of the things that got me excited about locks was like, you know, just not having to do anything with it every single day. Like right. I, there's that one day we have to sit there and really like spend hours on it. But other than that, mm -hmm. you know, it's wake up and you're ready to go exactly get up and go yeah was that um kind of what inspired you to start growing locks or was there something else that motivated you no it was it was actually that i mean i actually contemplated locks for years oh I really would say. yeah a long time because like i said i always had these magazines and you know there's always the, the variety of styles and the locks would you know always catch my attention and i was like mm -hmm. Man, I wonder if I could pull it off. Could I? <laughs> maybe, maybe not. But the thing that really frightened me and held me back was there's this feeling of permanence about mm. getting locks, right? Like everybody always tells you, well, you know, if you get locks and then you just you don't decide you don't want them, you gotta cut all your hair off again, start from scratch. You know, and, and that can be a little bit intimidating. I mean, I did, I did chop it all off once, but, you know, I didn't necessarily know if I wanted to go that route again. And um, so it kind of helped me back a little bit, but I, I was always looking, I was always thinking about it. I was always on the fence. And I actually think what really kind of pushed me over finally was um, when I discovered sister locks, because that's what I oh, ended right. up getting. And I think the reason why I... I kind of just went over the edge when I kind of discovered sister locks was one, um, you know, I know this is a podcast, people can't see me, but like, I'm, I'm a tiny lady, you know, like I'm very slight framed and, you know, there are some locks that I think can be a little bit bigger and thicker. And, you know, I wanted something that, you know, was kind of fitting for the rest of me, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, the other thing is that, the impression that I got was that you kind of had um, more styling options with sister locks. And I don't even know if that's actually true, but at the mm -hmm. time I was convinced that it was true. And that's, that kind of helped to push me over the edge also. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. I remember um, I already had locks where I started learning about sister locks and 
at one point actually has someone who did Sister Lux on me to a degree because I was playing sports and um, anytime I got a retwist, like, you know, I had soccer practice the next day and like, it would just mm-hmm. kind of come undone and the Sister Lux mm-hmm. kind of helped keep it locked in regardless yeah. of what happened. But um, yeah, I do know I've seen a lot of people who can do different types of styles, but um, and over the time I've learned like just everyone's hair in general could do different things. So right. it's, it's really is interesting. But yeah, Sister Lux is a really cool way to especially get into Lux too, because then it's kind of like you still have a loose hair, you can do a little bit of different things with it. Yeah, although the the funny part is, like, I, I don't really do much with it. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. yeah. I pretty much just get up and go every day. So I don't yeah. know if that was like, you know, I didn't, I probably didn't take advantage of that as much as I thought I would. <laughs> <laughs> but it it pushed me over the edge. So, you know, there's gotcha. that. Okay, so is your go-to hairstyle really just kind of just letting it fall down? Yeah, this is it. <laughs> nice, nice. Also, like, connects with your culture And as also, well. yeah, back to home at the same yeah. time. Yeah, <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. Nice. Yeah. So um, would, would you say, are there any, I guess, any misconceptions about um, one, I guess, just like the cultural, any misconception about the Jamaican culture that you think is important to kind of dispel? Misconceptions about the Jamaican culture. Um, that's a good one. I think that, well, first I'll say this. Um, I think a lot of people, when they think about Jamaican culture, you know, obviously like one of the iconic Jamaicans is Bob Marley, right? Mm-hmm. Um, these days you could also maybe, if there were Usain Bolt in there, but you know, like, especially when I was younger, it was just Bob Marley and that's it. So I do think that people often um, make an immediate connection with um, reggae and Jamaican culture, which, which I think is true, but, mm-hmm. um, but with Rastafarian culture and, you know, all the things associated, like, you know, including, you know, marijuana and things like that. Um, I do think it's important for people to really understand that, yes, Rastafarian culture is, is a common thing in Jamaica, That doesn't mean everyone from Jamaica is a Rasta. It also is important to remember not not everyone who has locks is a Rasta. Um, Mm -hmm. I think people make that assumption about me. Like they see the locks and they think, oh, she's a Rasta. And oh, she's into this and into that. Like, I'm not. This, while it was a lifestyle choice and I think partially a cultural choice, um, it wasn't the religious choice like mm-hmm. Rastas make. And that's definitely a different um, aspect of, of locks. So I think sometimes they all kind of get, you know, intermingled when um, they shouldn't always be, you know? So um, I would say that's probably the one misconception that a lot of people have. Gotcha. I appreciate you um, answering that. I know that's like a big question I just kind of sprung on you at the end, <laughs> but thank you for that. And yeah, that's very important to share as well. Um, and I guess really I have just one more question for you. Mm-hmm. It's a big one as well. Um, what is the first thing that you're going to do once it's safe to go back out into society again and everything's open back? Oh, okay. Um, you know, it's funny. I've been asking other people this question, but I actually haven't thought <laughs> about it for myself. <laughs> so, um, 
so all right let's see the first thing I, you know what the first thing i really want to do is super simple but i just want to go out to a restaurant and sit there and right. eat my meal there. <laughs> yes yes I, I can't I wait that. to do that again mm-hmm. any <laughs> restaurant in particular Yes, actually. So there's a favorite restaurant that my husband and I have. It's right here in the neighborhood. It's a local spot. Like we go there all the time. Like every server in there knows us. The, you know, the host knows us, the bartenders, they know us by name. When, you know, when this whole thing started, we were like, we got to order from there to make sure that it's still open when this is all over. (laughs) But Mm -hmm. unfortunately, they're not open right now they decided to just you know shut their doors for now and you know it really hurts because like you know those people there you know there are peeps you know and right Right. now they're like they're out of work they're not they're not getting an income or anything like that and it's uh it feels horrible to know that they're dealing with that and day one we're going back there to support that's Mm -hmm. that's what we're doing (laughs) yeah yeah i'm with you it's a a restaurant in our neighborhood called Brocket Pub. And at first they were open to, to kind of do to-go orders because then once a week we went there. But then um, uh, one of their staff members had a family who actually caught uh, coronavirus and oh. so they decided to kind of close down. Yeah. And it's so interesting. I think a lot of times we don't necessarily know anybody who has coronavirus. We're just thinking like, oh, is it real? But then you hear like, oh, this person, oh, and then that person there. And it's really just like a very, the, the circle gets smaller from the people who yeah. don't have it to do. And Absolutely. It is, it is really real. If anyone has any doubts, my mom had it, my dad mm. had it, my sister had it, and I think my mm. sister's boyfriend has it right now. <laughs> oh, really? So, yeah, it is really real. I mean, they're in New York, you know, so it's, oh, it's gotcha. a hot spot, right? And all of them, they got tested positive. Mm. It's real. Man. How are they doing yeah. right now? They're much better now. Thank you for asking. And, you know, my sister, she, she didn't really struggle too much with it, but you know, my parents are older, you know, they're in their seventies and Mm -hmm. they were like out of it for like two full weeks. I mean, it is not just the flu. Mm. It is a little bit more than that. And my sister, uh, you know, she's the only one there in the house. She lives in the house with them. So, you know, she's trying to take care of both of them. But, you know, when I, when I talked to my mom, she literally described it as, it's like you got hit by a truck. Like, oh. she was like, oh. everything hurts. You don't want to move. They didn't eat for days. Like, they were just, mm. they were just out of it. And, you know, now they're finally getting back to, you know, the normal swing of things. Not 100%, but much better than they were a couple of weeks ago. So, thankful for mm. that. That is a blessing. Yeah. Did you, um, by chance, see um, a revolt had a like two-hour um, kind of virtual town hall just about kind of the state of COVID and how it's affecting Black America? No, I didn't see it. I think you mentioned it to me before, but I didn't okay, actually I I catch did. it. Yeah, gotcha. yeah. So yeah. if it, if there's like a playback available somewhere, I'll, I'll go check for that. <laughs> oh yeah, it's all on YouTube, and I keep seeing more and more people talking about it. It's just really. Um, kind of interesting like he had a lot of different people on like big sean actually came and spoke and he mentioned like in detroit there's a hospital where they had a lot of people come in with coronavirus and like mm-hmm. within a month 700 of the people working there caught the coronavirus 
and it's just intense it's like interesting what's um it's, it's interesting like how long this will like the ripple effect after yeah. mm-hmm. going down into it yeah you know. it's really tricky man i think this thing is that it's like it's super contagious i mean it yeah. just spreads like wildfire and i mm-hmm. i think that part of it is because a lot of people who are maybe younger or you know just don't have as many symptoms or just don't notice symptoms or some people really have no symptoms but they're mm-hmm. out there spreading it spreading it and they don't know yeah you know? i mean it's yeah it's hard to like fault them really because they don't know but it, you know hopefully if we stick to the right. guidelines we can keep that kind of spreading to a minimum true yeah i know a lot more people are taking it more seriously now so we just hope that uh <laughs> people continue to do so cancel the spring break plans <laughs> stay home <laughs> Yeah, right. I'm, try- I'm trying to have a summer, man. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. We want some kind of summer, so just stay right. home right now. Stay home. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, thank you very much for taking the time to um, to kind of sit down and talk with me today. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. And, um, it was my pleasure, Walter. Thank you for listening to Boss Locks, where we redefine professionalism and prove that natural hair and professionalism do coexist. If you liked today's episode, please go and subscribe to our show to make sure you never miss an episode. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or really wherever you listen to podcasts. Matter of fact, if you don't see us on your favorite podcast platform, just let me know and I'll make sure we're there by the next time our episode comes out. And um, if you want to learn more about Patricia, please visit our website to find links to her social media, her website, and the ebook she mentioned. Um, you can find it on www.bosslocks.org. That is B O S S L O C K S.org. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.